You're listening. You're listening. You're listening. You're listening to Music Biz 101 and more. If you want to learn about the music industry and you don't know where to go, tune in to WP88.7. start this right in octaves yeah <laughs> that is very true that is very true and i try not to i want to go dissonant and uh i wind up fitting right in there it's because you're you're just your ears your musical ears are so good right right in the pocket it's impossible for you to to sing off key it's very easy for me but for our listeners this whole thing is on key because you're listening to music biz 101 and more on brave new radio radio bravo yeah. i'm your professor david kirk philp along with dr Stabon. Almost Emeritus Marconi. That is right. Within 24 hours, he'll still be working at William Patterson, but 24 48. hours after that, he'll oh, be gone. Right. Yes. Tomorrow, because today, June 29th, year of our Lord, 2020, tomorrow he's out. So, Dr. Esteban, we should tell people that Dave McNally is with us today, our guest. Hello, Dave. Hello. Dave is a, Good to be back. Get, getting his MBA in music and entertainment management here at the University of William Patterson. And this is part of a Nashville class in which he was able to wrangle a guest who we will talk about shortly. And uh, right. we have listeners go to musicbiz101wp.com, sign up for that newsletter, and follow us on Instagram, Twitter, to Facebook at musicbiz101wp. And of course, the podcast, probably what you're listening to now. Thank you for listening to it because we work very hard. Dr. Esteban, should we give thanks? Yes, we better. Time to give thanks. Thanks, 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 thank you. To the folks at Van Dyne, Bruno Inc. and White Hat Management, with artists like Gabe Matthews, Trez Doors Down, St. Vincenzo, and Kiss. There's only one place to go for your band's business management. Go to VB. CPA.com when you're ready. And we want to give thanks to also the recently retired Christine. Boy. They, a wealth manager at the Forefront Group. Christine, during her career, helped many billions of professionals at the University of William Patterson, other universities, and at other institutions of employment, manage their investments, plan for their retirement when somebody like you, for example, you may be a Dave McNally. You might be thinking of building a bridge to your financial future. A guy like Dave McNally is going to think about the forefront. <laughs> a guy like Dave is going to go to christine.they at forefront.com. Leave the last oil off for savings. We should also mention the University of William Patterson's Music and Entertainment Industries undergraduate program, Music and Entertainment Management MBA program. They're both recognized by a guy named Bill Board as one of the best in the United States of America, and I'm including Canada and Mexico in that as well. Mm -hmm. Isn't that great? All because of Marconi. Good. <laughs> Good, that's right. So we have our guest today, who is Lydia Kim, and we're extremely excited to have her on. Hello, Lydia. How are you today? Hi, I'm good. How are you guys? We want you to be great. 
we want you to say at the end, <laughs> so awesome. And just tears of joy, that's what's going to happen. Uh, maybe by the end of this podcast. <laughs> yes, that, that's the goal. So we're, we're excited for your future joy. And Dave McNally, who connected with you and got us on this, Dave's going to give you your intro, and then we're going to jump in. So Dave McNally... No pressure. Give the intro, let's jump in. <laughs> yeah, no pressure at all. Um, so Lydia Kim is the Vice President of Legal and Business Affairs at Concord Music Group. Uh, as a part of the legal team for Concord Music and Publishing, Lydia drafts and negotiates agreements with emerging and established songwriters, uh, contemporary classical composers, and music distributors. Uh, she joined Concord in 2017 when the company acquired Imagine. Uh, prior to this, she was a legal fellow at Volunteer Lawyers for the Arts, and she is an alumni of NYU and Notre Dame Law School. Woo! I think that's all of it. I hope. Yes. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> Um, so I guess my first question is before, actually, yeah, about volunteer lawyers for the arts. So before, imagine before Concord, you were working for volunteer lawyers for the arts. Um, could you explain how you got involved with VLA and what your biggest takeaways were from working there? Uh, sure. I um, knew I wanted to be in the arts and entertainment space after graduating law school and um, we had a public interest program there. So I reached out to a few organizations, Volunteer Lawyers for the Arts particularly spoke to me because they have um, a really great program in helping underrepresented groups and, um, and uh, you know, those who can't necessarily afford legal services uh, as, up-and-coming up artists or startup arts organizations. So uh, I joined uh, after law school, um, and uh, and it, you know we. I I believe I spent around two years there before being at Amagam. So. Oh, Amagam! Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> no, it's totally fine. I believe even within the company, there were three or so ways to say it. Okay, that's good so, to know. Uh, yeah. One for three. That's a pretty good batting average. <laughs> um, when you were working in Volunteer Lawyers for the Arts, were you mostly dealing with musicians? Um, it actually kind of, uh, there, there was a broad spectrum of artists and arts organizations coming in. Um, and and seeking services from the some, from the organization, but I definitely gravitated towards the musicians and um, performing artists just because it I found that that was uh, interesting to me. Um, but I definitely did more than that at that organization because it's mm -hmm. a nonprofit, so they needed a lot of help and support, and so whatever was needed. Um, you know, we took care of. Hmm. Um, do you have like a background in music? Did you grow up like playing an instrument or like involved in music or just music always kind of spoke to you? Um, I, uh, I played piano from maybe the age of six to 14. <laughs> I never got that good at it, but um, <laughs> something that, uh, my parents wanted both my brother and me to learn as a skill to learn some sort of discipline um so i did that until the moment that i could quit <laughs> um but uh but i did find that to be a valuable experience i can't say that i can read sheet music so much anymore but it definitely provides good context for the job that I have now. Um, I also danced a bit when I was younger um, and uh, my parents owned a video store. So that provided some, you know, practical applicability towards media and its use of music. What kind of video store, like home video or they were editing video? Uh, home video. It what was, was the name uh, of it? Where it was called, well, we, there were a few, but the last big video store that my dad had was uh, Big Town Video. It was a 
local video store where people would go and rent videotapes. Where was it? Um, I grew up in Chino Hills, California. So, oh, okay. Yeah, so it was in California. Then um, I think Netflix came on the scene and uh, Blockbuster started their own sort of, you know, pick up, drop off, mail order service as a result. And uh, then by the time Redbox started appearing in stores, my dad said, oh, okay, this is, this is it. This is the end of the video store. So, yeah. Mm. Yeah. I, I used to be in the home video business because I used to work for Polygram Video. And so oh, okay. we had uh, movies like Four Weddings and a Funeral and The Usual Suspects and NFL films and music videos. And so uh, I bet if your dad ever went to any big conferences, like there's one called VSDA that used to happen in Las Vegas. That was like the, the, the NAM or NARM of, uh, mm -hmm. uh, of, of, you know, the music business. And so uh, would go to that and that would be like the huge big convention of all these independent video store owners would go to that every year. Yeah, I don't know what sort of, he must have gone to that at some point. I mean, he had, he and a bunch of his buddies created their own sort of um, uh, mini association so they could collaborate as independent video store owning um, uh, people, proprietors. And then, um, yeah, I mean, he would often when I got old enough, it, you know, he, he would ask me, oh, is this movie good? <laughs> it will be popular for our audience. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it was a definitely a really interesting experience growing up with the video store. Um, and then I'd have to say that we, uh, the radio was always on at home. My parents um, immigrated to the States in the late 70s and that was kind of the way that they exposed themselves to the English language and really learned it. Um, and so, you know, we always had the radio on in the background and I just remember my mom would just sing along to it. All right. So you mentioned something before about using your musical training now for your job at Concord. Could you expand on that a little bit? Like how are you using that training in uh, a legal sense? <laughs> sure. Well, um, being part of the business affairs and legal department, you know, there it's not always purely legal, but I, the way that I learn, it's just helpful for me to have context in what I am doing and how that relates to um, you know, when you when you look at a contract or you look at a project. Um, just for me to actually visualize what that is going to be in reality. Um, and uh, when I started at Amalgam, um, part of my role, which uh, continues to this day, was um, to cover uh, the Boozy and Hawks division, which is um, a classical music publishing company. Um, and unlike Hop, which uh, doesn't really do this as much anymore, um, on the classical music side, the first publication is the sheet music that the composer has created. Um, and so it was just a lot easier for me to know exactly what the different departments roles were within the classical music division because I understood um, sheet music and mm -hmm. um, how to read it and what that entails. And so the classical music division has its own editorial department that helps bring the sheet music um, to performance quality for presenters. And, um, and then there's a whole rental licensing division with a library of performing materials, um, which um, then the score is broken up to instrument parts. And, um, and it was just so much easier for me to understand what that meant. Not that there weren't any challenges along the way, but just to have that context of, oh, okay, this is, this is the score, this is, these are the parts, and this is how it's performed in live performances. Mm -hmm. yeah. Okay. Um, 
So my next question is, when drafting agreements with new artists and songwriters, are you making each agreement on a case-by-case -case basis? Like, is there, are you usually following like boilerplate type agreements or are you taking every new artist and um, composer and distributor differently? Uh, we do have um, boilerplate form agreements to work uh, from, uh, but at the end of the day, Every artist is different. Their circumstances are different. What they're looking for in a relationship with their music publisher can be different. And so we try to accommodate that. Um, you know, a lot of these deals are built on what we are expecting um, in terms of the artist's creative output. And so uh you know those are all taken into consideration when we're drafting agreements but they all fall within a um, within one of the basic categories of a publishing co-publishing or administration deal so for songwriters do you normally have a minimum delivery commitment like minimum amount of songs you want to see being written i don't see that so much anymore um when i first started at uh, in Magam, we were still doing MDRC minimum de delivery and release commitment deals. Um, and I understand that uh, Nashville songwriters tend to have minimum delivery commitments and not necessarily uh, the release component of that. Um, but, uh, but I don't, uh, the deals that I work on, I don't normally see the MDRC come up any uh, as much anymore. Uh, it's usually recruitment based. So, uh, you know, we provide an advance and then uh, the deal moves through whatever number of contract periods were negotiated uh, as they um, recoup the advances that were provided at the beginning of the term. May I ask a question? Publishing versus recording deals. Do you feel that publishers give writers a longer leash than a uh, recording company will with an artist? Meaning if uh, the first album fails, lots of times the label will just drop the artist. Uh, from a publishing standpoint, do you let that go a little bit longer? Um, I would think so just by the nature of the type of deals um, that uh, that publishing agreements follow. But I, I should provide a disclaimer that I don't work on recording agreements. So I only know them as, uh, you know, by osmosis, <laughs> um, if any, but, um, but we don't, because there aren't so many delivery or release requirements happening lately, uh, it really is just, you know, trying to work with the artist and help them uh, develop their career if that's, if they're a developing artist and find that um, those connections that they need to succeed and then you know moving through the deal uh, as they recoup their advances or um, flow through the contract terms of that agreement so i think in that sense you know we're not so concerned about oh this album didn't get released because maybe they have some other projects that are happening um any maybe some writing sessions uh, with other artists and it's not necessarily that they are the performing artists of a specific uh, album that they're supposed to release, but just that they're in the, you know, they're behind the scenes working with other artists and getting, getting that done. I would think there's also less, I don't want to say risk, but less overhead from a publishing standpoint, because you're not having somebody, they may go in the studio to cut a demo but it doesn't have to be the full finished, you know, uh, project, you know, it, versus, you know, I could cut a demo in a day versus if I'm going to do that as a single, it might take a few weeks to get all the, the right producer and all the right people and all the expenses and flying people in and musicians and all that kind of stuff, which 
ultimately the artist is paying for through recoupment, but you guys are advancing out. So with songwriting, not as much. Yeah, I would say that the overhead is, is very different uh, for publishing and that um, there are a lot of teams um, in, involved in the process of making a record album and in songwriting, it's, it's definitely different. You know, we have our A&R team and they help get the artists out there, find the connections for them. But ultimately, because of the nature of the songwriting business, it's just not the same. So I have one quick question. So does it matter from your side what PRO an artist or a writer belongs to? Um, no, not, well. Like for the artist, I know it matters because there's different payouts, but like for, for your side of it, was there much of a difference? No, I mean, each, I think each PRO handles um, their administration of rights differently. So uh, at the end of the day, it kind of balances out, but you know, some ASCAP might uh, allocate royalties one way and BMI may focus on another. Um, I couldn't really tell you from uh, my point of view, which would be better in which situations, but um, but I think at the end of the day, you know, it sort of evens out um, on, from the publisher perspective. Um, there are a lot of PROs um, across the world and we are a global company. So the thing we see that artists choose whatever PROs that um, they have affiliated with and then the publisher is affiliated as a publisher with all these PROs. So we let the artists choose what they are, who they would like to be affiliated with. And then we match that on the publishing side. So with the whole coronavirus thing, obviously touring is kind of out the window right now. Do you see in the future artists wanting uh, different splits? Uh, royalty splits on their songwriting deal? Yeah, do you see like, uh, do you think there will be a push from artists to challenge, I guess, those like standard numbers you would see? Um, you know, it's really hard to say. I think in general, there is a trend towards artists. Uh, you know, perhaps they are more in tune with how the music industry works now, just because of the information that is available today. Um, but, uh, but in general, um, I do see that artists, songwriters are looking to control more than they used to um, and are sort of negotiating what um, the publisher should or should not get in these relationships. But um, I don't know if that would, I, I think that has started to um, be a point of negotiation before the live streaming or the the pandemic itself. Mm -hmm. So I'm not I'm not sure that the pandemic will have a change in those royalty splits. Um, but I think in general, you know, artists and songwriters are looking to control more than they used to. Uh, Concord Music has ex basically exploded in the last five years. <laughs> Uh, I don't know if sure capitalists found them or, or what, but they probably, you know, could be the, maybe the fourth or fifth biggest uh, company now in the United States anyway. Is this a constant sort of a uh, direction or an objective for them to continue to acquire good companies and so on? Uh, yes, I think... Um... You know, the, the goal has been to continue to look at new strategic acquisitions and partnerships and grow the company where it makes sense. Um, there is, of course, a balance in that because you, know, you acquire something and you make sure that you have uh, uh, all your ducks in a row uh, before you continue to grow, but we're not, uh, means that, you know, if there is a good opportunity there and it's, uh, it 
looks like a sound deal, then Concord is going to go for it. Um, uh, are they still basically uh, headquartered in San Francisco or not? Um, they were previously headquartered in LA, but uh, now uh, the headquarters are in Nashville. Okay. And I'm and in New York. You're in New York. When they acquired Imagum in 2017, um, we were fortunate enough that what they were also looking for was the sort of overhead support in the publishing um, side of things because they had a lean team and we still are fairly lean for as much as we've grown, but, um, but Imagum had its own, uh, it was a relatively large independent company. Um, so uh, was able to provide the publishing support that Concord was looking for. Um, so that, that uh, made the transition pretty positive one for us. Let's talk about uh, publishing deals for mm -hmm. the next three hours. <laughs> In the past, the traditional deal was a 50-50 deal. I'm the writer, you're the publisher, and we dollar comes in, we split it 50-50. But was it in the past, going further back, there was the writer's side and there was the publisher's side. And the writer's side got 50% and the publisher's side would get 50% of the whole thing or 100% of the publisher's side. Do you, do you look at it like that, or you just look at the song, 100% of a song? It's not really a publisher side or writer side. We're just taking that dollar, and we're splitting it 50-50, and we don't look at it anymore as a writer side and a publisher side. There are still considerations from that perspective of a writer side and a publisher side, just because of, I believe, the nature of the business, which, you know, the performing rights organizations all sort of recognize the writer's share of, um, of the public performance right to be very holistically the songwriters. And so I think with that sort of context, everything else sort of falls into place as a writer's side and a publisher's side. I think sometimes um, you might see that uh, the writers that the royalty percentages may not necessarily reflect that. Uh, the splits between the writer and publisher may not necessarily reflect the uh, songwriter share and the publisher share um, in that deal perspective. But uh, but overall, you know, you see, you still consider the fifty percent that is the songwriter share and the then the publisher's share either split 50-50 in a co-pub deal or 100% to the publisher if it's just a pure publishing deal, which doesn't happen um, so much in the pop side of things or the general music side of things, but, um, but we do still see in the classical music side of, of the business. Um, and then the admin deals are, you know, the writer, owns and controls their copyrights. So we just take the admin fee. Which is usually 15 to 20% the administration fee? It depends. It's negotiable. Um, I would say that uh, around 15, we're starting to see uh, some 90-10 deals as uh, fairly uh, it, I mean, it, it really just depends on, you know, what type of deal, what catalog you're looking at. So I would say between 10 and 20%. Okay. Like if you're Phil Collins or something, you're going to get a, get a better deal than Dave McNally, for example, just because there's already, uh, I don't know Dave McNally's catalog, but <laughs> it's, it's a pretty it, major catalog and uh, we're going to negotiate that later. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you mentioned co-publishing earlier. I want to make, that clear. So in a co-publishing deal, you have, again, uh, writer's side, publisher's side. So you, uh, on the publisher's side, that's where you're splitting. The writer gets a portion of that 
of the publisher's side and the uh, publisher's getting a portion of that. So a dollar comes in, automatically the writer gets 50 cents. Then with that other 50 cents, the writer and publisher is splitting that. And that's the co-published deal, correct? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Most royalty streams, you'll see the 75-25 um, split because that reflects that 50% or 100% of the writer's share uh, goes to the writer and then 50% of the publisher's share uh, then gets added on top of that and the publisher takes its 50% of the publisher's share. Um, so that ends up being 75-25 then with the public performance rights, since the writer gets paid directly um, by the PRO, um, their writer share completely. Uh, the income that comes in that's collected by the publisher is just the publisher share performance royalties and then that gets split 50-50. And that's the so standard 75% idea. So the difference here is, okay, so we're, in, in a, we're talking the same thing, but we're talking two different things because when oh, okay. you do the 75-25 deal, 75% uh -huh. of a dollar comes in, 75% goes to the writer, and that's in the co-publishing deal. And 25% of that goes to you. However, yeah. we could have done the deal, whereas it would have been 50% of the, of the publisher's side. So 50% of 50% mm -hmm. to you. Um, I, as a writer, get more getting 50% of your 50% versus that 25% of the whole thing, I believe. I think in the end, mathematically, going 75-25 instead of 50-50 and then 50% of the top 50, I should be drawing a graph uh, of this. Math is not my forte. Right. So... <laughs> Uh, well, I'll, 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 let me do this. I'll do the math and uh, actually here and see if I'm wrong or if I'm right. But the final question that you can answer in this topic and then we'll come back after I do the math. Um, <laughs> let's say we have a typical 50-50 deal. Uh-huh. Is it really 50-50 or it's 50-50 after you guys take an admin fee of maybe 10 or 15 percent? That is a negotiated so it really just depends on uh, what is negotiated uh, between the artist and the publisher. Um, but typically speaking, there, is, there may be an admin fee off the top for the administration services that the publisher provides. There would also you know, be taken into consideration that there, that um, as uh, that music publishers often have a sub-publishing network for territories where they may not um, be, have a presence or, direct, or collect directly. And in those cases, those admin fees would also, um, those commissions would be taken from the revenue coming in before it gets received by the publisher and then okay. split between the writer and the publisher. Now, as, as a writer that owns his own publishing, or they own their own publishing. I always thought it was better to do an admin deal with a clause that says, should you get the song placed, then you get extra on top of your admin, rather than a co-publishing. Yeah, that, that sometimes um, is a consideration, but I don't, I think it really depends on the songwriter or artist and what their goals are um, mm -hmm. in their career. Uh, as a, for co-publishing co co deals, um, usually when they, when they come to my desk for negotiating, drafting the actual agreement, there already has been a number of conversations between the A&R team and the and the artist in determining what they're looking for in their relationship with the publisher and what they have to offer. Um, and so, you know, maybe the artist is already established and they have their own uh, connections in the industry and their own sort of uh, path towards their developing their career or continuing on their career. And they don't necessarily need the publisher to help them make those um, uh, 
uh, connections for them or, or help uh, provide that sort of professional support, uh, they might find that an admin deal makes more sense and then um, they just want that extra oomph that a publisher would provide. So that model might uh, work in that, in that situation. But if it's an emerging artist, I would say that, you know, it does make sense to do a co-publishing deal sometimes because then you're getting that sort of uh, that uh, multi-service support from your publisher. You know, everyone has, has, uh, has some skin in the game and, um, and really wants to make the artists success, help, help the artists become successful and because then it just benefits every party that's involved. Mm -hmm. Now, is, is co-publishing usually for the life of the copyright in perpetuity? Um, that's, that's all, that's a negotiated point. Um, obviously it would work well to have a life of copyright deal from the publisher's perspective, right. but it doesn't always make sense, you know, with a lot of new music, the life of the, uh, of the music itself isn't as long. It's hard to find those evergreen tracks or know what will be evergreen. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, uh, so you'll, you'll see that in deals, there might be some provision about reverting unexploited compositions. And that's sort of to balance out the idea that the publisher might retain copyrights for a certain period of a long period of time up to life copyright. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But um, you know, if the publisher hasn't successfully uh, exploited that uh, during the uh, prescribed term in the agreement, then the writer can take back those copyrights. Uh, and, you know, it's sort of a nice balance. Yeah. yeah. Right. Okay, David, your answer. No, David. I did my math and it did look like I tried to do it twice and it looked like it was the same that it wasn't whether it was. I believe the listening are going to get completely confused. So what Lydia said was 75-25 is the same as splitting 50% of 50%. 50%. Right. Yeah. So you're good. So I mean, I think we were just uh, trying to do math, which is math. <laughs> <That's it. laughs> trying to do math in our head. Yeah. That's right. Um, <laughs> And then I'm just looking at some notes that I took because I went to a uh, conference in Nashville about this a little while ago. And they also talked about that a lot of co-publishing deals are just sort of the become glorified administration deals where they may last for like, and again, you mentioned all this stuff is uh, uh, what do you call it? Uh, negotiable. Um, after about 10 years of the co-pub, the rights may revert back to the songwriter and they can either renegotiate or the songwriter can then take his or her catalog and go elsewhere. Yeah, I mean, that's, I would say that's fairly accurate uh, description. And they're just very long-term admin deals. Uh, and the writer still assigns half of the copyrights to the publisher during that term. But, um, you know, if the rights are reverting to the writer at some point in the future, then right. that's really just a, beefed up admin deal. Can you explain really what that means when, when uh, I'm a writer, you and I, we do a co-publishing deal and therefore you're getting half the value of the copyright in that song and I'm keeping the half. What, what does that really mean? You owning half the copyright of a song? How, how, how does that matter versus just licensing it from me and getting the same amount of money? What, 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 you know, can you sort of define the terms and what, where the value is in owning a portion of that copyright? Uh, well, it, you know, ownership of the copyright is really, you're, you're owning an asset at that point. So it sort of builds on the portfolio of, of business. Um, I, don't, I don't know if I can fully articulate why a co-publishing deal from a business perspective or owning copyrights from a business perspective 
would uh, be any different from receiving royalties in the same split and not owning the copyrights, but um, but there is value in the actual ownership of an asset and the control that um, follows that versus just a pure admin deal is as much as I can say. <laughs> um, but that, but that would I actually think, make, it, it would sort of make sense, I mean, just even just on your balance sheet or, or in your sales material, you know, from a higher level as a company, um, for, for some publisher to say we own X number of copyrights, even if it's a portion of a copyright, it's an asset. Let's say they're trying to sell the company or they're trying to impress other songwriters and attract them. Again, I think it just, uh, even, even if it's a limited time ownership before renegotiation, I think kind of what you're saying is you, you still partially own this valuable copyright in something. So I would kind of go where you are. With rise of like live streaming going on, uh, given the current situation, IG Live, Twitch, YouTube, um, more and more streamers are facing issues regarding the DMCA, Digital Millennium Copyright Act. Um, has Concord had a discussion at all about like the enforcement of DMCA or is that not really something you've been looking into? Uh, there are definitely issues that have come up during this pandemic that um, have suddenly, you know, really ramped up some conversations uh, about the use of music in the new media space, including live streaming. Um, you know, it's, it can be a bit tricky because we have a record label division and a uh, theatrical business and they're both deeply affected uh, very directly and very noticeably affected by the pandemic and uh, and the lack of any sort of live concert performances. And so we have to find a good balance of supporting our artists um, and their careers and finding new ways for them to connect um, with their audiences and keep them engaged while this sort of pandemic passes uh, and we determine how live performances will look like in the future. Um, so, you know, there are considerations with um, whether uh, or what, what to do with these new live stream spaces. Um, but Concord is interested in having the partnerships with these uh, live streaming services um, it whenever they make sense and they work for the artists uh, and uh, you know support the artist uh, artist platform and um, and I guess at some point if we find that or you know, yeah if we find that these uh, services aren't doing that or they're not protecting the rights of the artists, the songwriters um, in these spaces, then, you know, we will need to figure out a way to help mm. resolve that as well. It's, all, it's a whole new world uh, where we're relying on these digital services and you know, technology moves very quickly. So, uh, we're all just trying to do the best we can, figure out ways to support the artists and songwriting community during this pandemic. It's interesting, when I worked at the Universal Music Group, we called your division, and I don't mean this uh, in any way to be offensive, we called uh, business affairs, we called them um, sales prevention, because we would try, and at the time, the division I was in, we were trying to do actually digital deals. So this is, um, 2004, 2005, so 15, 16 years ago. And we're trying okay. to get digital deals. They didn't exist, the rights that we wanted to offer to companies, for example, to do uh, the downloading deals in which they would license basically the rights to our catalog. So uh, Pringles could offer three free downloads by 
to, you know, things that Pringles get three free downloads um, of the entire Universal Music Group catalog. The rights weren't built in, built in to all these hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of contracts as to whether or not um, outside third parties or anybody was allowed to license and have the right to those downloads. So we wanted to do these deals because we had clients. I was in this Universal Music Enterprises who wanted clients who wanted to do these deals and money was going to come in your department um, would put, put brakes on it and say, hold, hold on, hold on. And there was a value to what you did because as, as salespeople, we wanted the money. We wanted it to bring in the revenue. You guys were like, we don't know if we can do that because if we do it, it might come back to us two years from now because we might get sued by Bono, you know, or Stevie Wonder or somebody might say, you did not have the right. Um, we owned Interscope and Marconi knows very well about what uh, Eminem and his lawsuits uh, versus streaming services and stuff were these licenses or was this ownership in terms of downloads, you know? So um, where am I going with this is your department isn't just, you know, your department is sort of overlooking deals and new opportunities from sort of a macro perspective, not just as the, wow, this will bring in revenue, but hold on, there's a larger story to all this that may pave the way for something else good or bad in the future um does that make sense and can you maybe touch upon that yeah that makes sense um we are we are sometimes a sales prevention team but you know <laughs> uh i uh manage the digital blanket licenses uh for concord now and um and it is sometimes for me an awkward position to be in because of course you know i'm uh negotiating and drafting these deals to sign new writers i understand what that um looks like what rights we have and uh the concerns that may come up and then from a licensing perspective you know it's it's very business oriented. It's how do we increase these opportunities for the artists? How do we increase the overall profit, um, the revenue streams, uh, and find new ventures and partnerships? And, uh, and you know, I handled the sort of agreement side of that as well. But you kind of have this balance of, well, what works best for our catalogs um, may not always be the best um, from a copyright protection point of view. You know, you, it's not necessarily, it doesn't necessarily make sense to say yes to everything because um, you can dilute the value of your catalog by just letting every player out there do what they wish with the music and hope that there are enough returns for the artists to benefit from that. Um, and, and, you know, the, and the business as well, the industry as well. So, so you're constantly sort of trying to do a sort of pros and cons analysis of each service and what they can bring to the table for your catalog. Um, and it sometimes translates to being a sales prevention team because everyone, you know, the A&R team, the creative services, they're all sort of ready and geared up and ready to go and they want this deal to happen and why not, you know, and then you sort of say, well, hold up, you know, we got to make sure that the rights are protected. We have to make sure that the proper I mean, some of these services are so new that they don't necessarily understand how to administer the music rights. So uh, there's a trend towards wanting to have a blanket license with the music companies, but then they don't realize that, uh, you know, you then need maybe licenses from all the PROs. Are you just in the US? Are you worldwide? If you're worldwide, well, the performing rights societies outside of the United States they're mandated the rights, the public performance rights. So we don't necessarily, we don't have the ability to grant that um, for on behalf of the, or well, the US, the US system just works differently. So those 
the rights that are granted outside of the United States to the PROs and to the mechanical rights societies there, well, we have to find ways and relationships to navigate around that. Um, we have, we're able to provide maybe a sort of, we have, you know, an idea of what our catalog is. So we have, we understand the risks, we understand um, who may be more sensitive to some of these uh, deals and some of the ways that um, the music is being used in the new media space. And we try to uh, cater to that uh, when, we, when we engage with new services. I hope that made sense. I think I went a circuitous way to get there. But. <laughs> It's a it's an interesting space to be in, um, and uh, and I think some of it is just figuring out along the way uh, what works and what doesn't, and making sure that we protect the rights of our artists and our business uh, as much as we can, but also not to hinder too much activity, especially during this pandemic. I'm looking for one more thing because yesterday I found something as it relates to, here it is, um, politicians using music for their campaigns. And I had never heard of this clause, um, and it's, it's from uh, the Rolling Stones, but um, let's say I'm the Rolling Stones, right. and um, a, a campaign uses Start Me Up for their rally, big rally, and it's uh, 50,000 people, doesn't matter, could be two people. Um, there's a political entities clause, or political entities license that uh, campaigns get from, whether it's a BMI, ASCAP, CSAC, that allows them to use these types of, uh, just whatever is in that catalog, use that for their rallies. But artists have been coming out. Um, the Rolling Stones over the weekend uh, said, we don't want Trump to use, you can't always get what you want. The week before, Tom Petty's family said, don't use um, Back Down, I think. Um, mm -hmm. Well, Back Down, yeah, I just broke copyright law there. But um, mm -hmm. we're hearing artists doing that. But from a, a, we, you never hear the publisher, or I don't hear as much the publisher coming out and say, we don't want X campaign to use this song that we own and we're via the uh, political entities license. Do you know anything about that? Have you ever heard um, of publishers coming out? Because you always hear the artists are doing it. And the artists are sexier than, um, you know, uh, Imogen. I said it wrong. <laughs> Imogen, I was like Gilligan. That's a fourth, a fourth way to say it. You might get there's no heaven, but yeah. But the songwriter you're talking about, really. Yeah. You know, I mean, in that case, Rolling Stones, but Keith and Mick, I would assume, and Tom Petty, so on. Because it is from the, I mean, well, I don't know. Now they are using the master recording, aren't they, sometimes? And, and also, they are. And, yeah, they and have the, it over the PA. Yeah, and and the publishing. Let's say they're with, uh, EM, you know, uh, Universal Music Publishing or whatever. Um, why does it Universal come out and say we don't want you to use this song? You know, I know it's Mickey Keith, but do, do you understand what sort of the discussion is, Lydia? I think so. Um, Normally, uh, I don't know if this is because the recording side is more public facing to begin with, but um, it usually doesn't come to the publishing side before it gets to the record label side. And mm -hmm. so a lot of times the issue has already developed uh, to an extent before it gets to you know, my desk, for example. Yeah. And so I think the decision has already kind of been made or navigated or uh, you know, the opinions already have been formed by the artist about what they want or don't want um, in, in that space. 
Um, from a contractual point of view, uh, it's very common um, to have an approval right to uh, be used, or the artist has the approval right um, to any sort of licensing that involves political uh, campaigns or social religious causes. So those sort of things, um, I believe are fairly standard in the publishing industry. Um, and so the, the issues don't necessarily come up from that perspective uh, because we would ask for that approval or we would sort of carve that out of any licenses that we um, enter into as, as a company. Um, so any sort of political use may wouldn't be licensed without the explicit approval of that artist. And if it is, then that's infringement. So Yeah, it is interesting because Marconi, you brought up the recording aspect. And I wasn't even thinking about the recording only because through BMI, they're only dealing with publishing and songwriting anyway. So it's um I'm, there was this I was quoting from a Rolling Stone article from uh, that I saw yesterday and they don't even bring up you can't always get what you want is through ABCO so um, they don't even talk about the, the uh, record master recording part but interesting we've gone very deep deep into the weeds today and I'm hoping that some people listen to this were found it interesting and some people didn't go oh my god that's crazy. I hope so too <laughs> <laughs> but there's a lot to it you know I mean the stuff we're talking about it shows the depth of sometimes complexity with, within this, the whole publish, especially the publishing side of the music. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Many layers. Yes. Yeah. Lots of onions. David, did you have anything else you wanted to end with? Because otherwise we're winding down. Uh, I am out of questions. Okay. Thank you. Well, Lydia, for agreeing are, to come on. are you working from home today, Lydia? Um, I, I'm actually today working from my brother's home. Um, okay. So while well, I said I work out of the New York office, I'm actually in Kentucky right now. Oh, wow. Um, we, uh, <laughs> my brother lives here and, uh, you know, we were, I was holed up in my apartment in Brooklyn, in New York, um, staying socially distant. Uh, and safe, wearing a mask um, when I went outside. And, uh, and today is my brother's birthday. Right. Uh, <laughs> happy birthday to him. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, so he, he said, you know, he wants some time here. Uh, it might be nice to get away. So, uh, so yeah, I mean, this is a really good opportunity for me to spend some more time with my family. Uh, when else would I be able to do that other than during a pandemic when we're all working remotely? Hmm. So here I am in Kentucky. Well, well, Dave did a really good job in finding out where you are. If you go, out, if you look in the front lawn, there's actually a piano book out there, and you're going to play some stuff from oh. your 14-year-old uh, piano book. Yeah, oh, boy. like five or six pieces. Hot I got ABR Sound, Braille Academy, all the good stuff. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> Little sidebar here. So you're recording this now, right, Dave? Phil? Yes. So if we sang happy birthday to your brother, mm -hmm. and I know now it was Warner that owned it, and then Warner said, Chapel. Yeah. Yeah, and they finally gave it up. Um, now, but we were making a recording of it now. Would we have to get permission from anyone? It's now in the public domain now. It's public domain. Happy birthday is public domain. Did they, did they, do, they did totally public domain? Okay. Yeah. yeah. Five months ago then, when Warner still owned it, Warner Chapel, and we made a recording of this, mm -hmm. of happy birthday. Would we have to get permission? Probably would have. Possibly, <laughs> but I think that so, was a point of... Because they wouldn't yeah, let... They wouldn't let, um, what is it, um, that restaurant chain, Applebee's, 
because Applebee's used to sing happy birthday, then now they get all the waiters to come over and they all clap their hands and they don't right, sing yeah. the melody. This mm -hmm. is sing happy birthday, happy birthday, and so on and so forth. Yeah. That's how they got away with it. That's um, right. Because yeah. one wanted the money. It's an interesting question that yeah. we never have to answer because it's public domain. <laughs> we would have had to seek a license for that, yes. Yeah. But I suppose, I don't, I mean, I don't know how much they would charge for that use. <laughs> well, Lydia, you had a license to kill on this podcast and you did. You killed it today. We well, thank you. Yes, you did a great job. We're going to clap for you now. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, I you hope that it was useful to your audience. Yeah, yeah. we will know and soon enough. And, and again, you're getting three or four grand pianos uh, dropped onto your front lawn today. So yeah. great. I'm Nail sure his neighbors will really love that. They'll yeah. be understanding. Yeah, yeah it's, it's, <laughs> it's a neighborly thing to do. And Dave, <laughs> bringing Lydia Kim on with us today. We really appreciate it. Awesome. Uh, actually, on the recommendation of uh, Duff, put me in touch with her so thank you to duff and thank you to lydia for agreeing to come on yeah great thanks david and dave who else refresh my memory who do we have on from concord we've had glenn barrows when he was still coo of concord he left about six months ten months ago yeah. maybe a year yeah, yeah. and uh, john strom who is uh president of rounder i believe uh based right. in nashville so we've had a couple con Concord or now X Concord and Lydia is the trifecta. Right. Yeah. Chair yeah. So thank you, Lydia. So Dr. Stitt, we end our show. What do we say at the end of every radio show? We do not say hello, do we? No, we say a Stan. That's right. That's the new thing. We actually say one, two, three, audio. Situation, you're losing hope, I'm losing patience.